And we're going to kind of continue that, that it's not just the, the Gentiles who have this need for God, but even the, those who God has given the law to and has given instruction to are still in need of his grace and his mercy. And there is never a time where we are not in need of God's grace and God's mercy. There is never a time where we get it all together. And I'm cool now, don't have to worry about this. Oh, I, I've read the book of Romans already. I don't need to read it again. Or, you know, I've been a Christian now for however many years. And so I, I'm all right with God. There is never a time where our dependency on God stops. But there are times when we act that way. There are times when we get this lackadaisical attitude in our relationship with God and we forget how much we are dependent on him. And all it takes is a change of circumstances. All it takes is illness. All it takes is uh, job loss or uh, you know whatever it is that comes our our way that shakes our world that helps us see things again clearly and recognize you know what I'm not as in control as I thought I was and it's always a good thing to know that it's always a good thing to recognize our frailty and God's And I share these things uh, with you because of a number of things that have been happening this week uh, with me. One of the things is I turned 50 years old this year. That's right. I'm just tired right now. I'm going to go to bed. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's never meant any, it's never been a big deal to me to have a birthday. I mean, when I turned 30, I didn't care. When I turned 40, it didn't bother me. And really, 50 didn't bother me except for the sound of it. <laughs> Even my son Jordan, I talked to him and, and I said, yeah, he goes, wow, you're 50. And he told Corinne, he didn't tell me, he goes, it's weird, dad's 50, you know. He's <laughs> like, that's weird. I was like, that's weird, having a son who's 23, that's weird. <laughs> But what, what's happened is it's, uh, it's made me think, you know, I don't feel 50. I'm not sure what 50 is supposed to feel like, but you don't stop feeling like you've always felt. But you have this understanding that you cannot cheat time. You cannot cheat death. You are subject to this world and the curse. And, yep, it, it's going to happen. You're going to get older. You know, I, I see kids jump off a wall and my knees hurt, you know, just by watching them. And I just, you can't stop what's happening, even though you don't feel like it, you should be a part of it. You know, the, the psalm says that God has put eternity within our hearts. And, and there's that reality of, man, no, I'm meant to live forever. And yeah, you are. But this body isn't. This body is in need. This body is subject to the curse that has fallen on humanity, and that affects you, and that affects me. And it's good to be aware of that. Because when you're young, you know, when I was 12, I didn't think I had to be aware of anything. I was going to 
live forever. I could jump off roofs, I could climb trees, you know, now I think twice. <laughs> then I do it, you know. <laughs> but it's good to realize where we really are. And also, other circumstances have just been impressed upon me, uh, our need to come before God and be crying out for strength, for help, and be aware, have an awareness of that need we all have. Even as I've been going through and studying this book, it's like, man, I really, really do need you, Lord. And I just want to open up in prayer right now and pray that God would open our hearts to see our need as we look through these scriptures that they would speak to us and uh, that God would minister to all of us here and we would be able to share the things that he's ministering to us together. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for caring so much for us that while we were still sinners, you died for us. When we were enemies, you cared. And you cared so that you could bring us into your family, so that you could bring salvation into our lives, that you could have a relationship with us that is genuine, that changes us, that speaks to us. Lord, I, I pray that that would be evident here tonight in our time together, that you would speak to us, that you would work among us and father you would enlighten us the eyes of our understanding and our hearts we we give this time to you and, and ask that you would hear this prayer lord and that you would indeed touch us for we do ask it in the name of your son jesus amen so anyway romans chapter 2 as I'd shared, Paul had finished explaining very clearly man's depravity. He talked about how people worshipped the creature rather than the creator and basically became like animals. When you, you give up the recognition of God's handiwork in your lives, you also give up that quality that God has created us to be. And we saw how depraved people could get, get when they turn away from God. And so Paul has explained that, that they were filled with just envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. He, he goes through a list of things that is just an explanation of what man becomes when he turns away from God, when he becomes basically an idolater where he worships something other than God. And the whole idea was he was satisfying his carnal or his natural man and not, not giving heed to the things of God that God has made known to him through nature itself and that he was without excuse, but he still chooses to live for himself instead of for God. And so there is this condemnation in mankind because they have refused to acknowledge God and instead have been given over to this depravity. Well, in chapter 2, he says, you, therefore, have no excuse. And we have to ask ourselves, who is Paul talking to? 
We know from verse 17 where it says, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, he's talking now to the Jews who were there in Rome. Rome, of course, was a great city that was predominantly Gentile, but there was a number of Jews there. Periodically, the Romans would actually clear the city out of the Jews because there was a lot of tension there with them. But there was a strong uh, population of Jews who were following Jesus Christ. Remember, Christianity was considered a sect of the Jews. You had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, and Christianity, they were trying to lump in with that sect of Jews, but both of them were rejecting it, saying, no, this is not a, a sect that we will acknowledge. And so it was kind of, you know, ostracized and, and considered an outcast, but predominantly it was started off among the Jews. Paul is the one who took this gospel in a very powerful way to the Gentiles, Peter did, with Cornelius as well, but now you've got this mix of these Gentiles and this Gentile community, but there is a strong population of Jews who make up the church as well. There's always been contention. We saw in Acts that con contention where Paul had to go back to Jerusalem and argued with them saying, no, you can't put this burden on the Gentiles, saying that they have to be circumcised, that they have to follow our religious ceremonies. That's not what Christ died for, and so that we could follow the ceremonies of our people. And so finally they said, okay, yeah, well, they don't have to do these things. They need to abstain from food that's been sacrificed, from blood, and from sexual immorality. And so those were the things that were battling, and Paul is addressing this church that has this mix now. And he just blasted the Gentiles, saying how depraved they were. And you can imagine a lot of those who, you know, were very uh, proud of their heritage, saying, yeah, you tell them, Paul. Yeah, you give it to them. Yeah, tell them Gentiles. They think they're so cool. You know, they eat pork sandwiches, you know. They're so... And now he's going to turn and say, and now you, therefore. And he's speaking to the Jews. And, and what he's doing here, and, and it's important to recognize, through the book of Romans, Paul is talking in a, a, an ancient style. It's called a, a diatribe style. And what that means is he's kind of talking to himself. He, he's pretending that there is a heckler in the crowd. And, you know, the heckler will say something and then Paul will answer them. And it's important to recognize, because it'll say, you know, so shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? As if a heckler was shouting out in the crowd and he would answer, God forbid. And, and that's kind of a style that's taking place and it's important to recognize that. Otherwise, we're going to think Paul is bipolar here and go, well, who are you talking to? But he's trying to bring out the arguments that people would have and then answer them. And he's doing that masterfully and very just in depth. And so he starts off, you therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things, the things that we talked about in chapter one, is based on truth based on the law that he's given. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them 
and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? Paul starts off powerfully. You guys are quick to judge, but you have no excuse because when you judge, you're guilty of the same things. And just as Paul talked about the Gentiles and them not being to escape that judgment, he said that in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 20, he says that, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Here he's saying that these people too who judge have no excuse. They had no excuse because God has clearly demonstrated who he is through creation. You have no excuse, you Jews, because you are not in a position to condemn or judge. And the word for judge here is the word crino. And it means to condemn. It doesn't mean to, to kind of judge between or give verdict. Paul, or Jesus talked about this too in, in Matthew's gospel where he says, you shall not judge. And he talks about the speck that's in your, your, your brother's eye and the plank that's in your eye. How can you judge don't, unless you take the plank out of your eye? But then later on he goes and he tells about the Pharisees and he says to watch out for they are wolves in sheep's clothing. And that they're to judge them by their fruit. By their fruit you will know them. Well, that takes some kind of judgment. But that's a different judgment than a condemnation. It's one thing to discern how a person's living, and it's another thing to condemn someone. They have no right to condemn. That's something that belongs to God, not to you, not to me. And those, you who would condemn someone, you who would say, these Gentiles are damned. They do not have the right to God's presence. They are condemned. You don't have that right. And what you have just done is place yourself in the position of God, which is exactly what they did when they took on this idolatrous worship and worshiped themselves, the creature, rather than the creator. And so Paul is saying, you're without excuse, just like they are without excuse. God revealed himself to them, God's revealed himself to you, but you've placed yourself in a position to condemn, and that is not your position. And he really blasts them, and he says, because you do the same things. You pass judgment. You might think, well, how, how are they doing the same things? Well, he's going to explain it more fully as the chapter goes on. But basically, the, the things that Jesus said, you've heard it said that thou shalt not murder, but I tell you, whoever hates his brother and calls him a fool is a murderer. And so here they're saying, well, no, these people, they've done these things, they've done these things. You're placing yourself in a position of God, and you don't realize your heart is in the same predicament. You too need salvation. 
you need to be changed, you need to be made whole, and you don't recognize that. So that when you mere men, verse 3 it says, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Remember what Jesus said, and what measure you meet, that's what it's going to be measured to you. As you forgive, that's how you're going to be forgiven. Here they are condemning. You think you're going to escape God's judgment if you're there condemning them? I'm going to talk about this more Sunday, but think about this. Person who's, you know, an adulterer, takes another man's wife. A person who, who, who's a murderer, who kills someone. And you're going to say, you know what? I don't care. I know the scriptures. That person is damned to hell. Do you realize you just damned David, who was a man after God's own heart? Who are you? You don't know the heart of a man. And you make that judgment at the wrong time. God was not done with David. Yeah, David blew it. David blew it big time. But God's mercy changed David. God's mercy can change us. And that's what he says there. He says, or do you not contempt the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience? Isn't that wonderful traits of God? The, the richness, the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance. And boy, so many times I think we have it mixed up. We, we think that God's judgment leads us to repentance, you know? If you can pound the pulpit and let people know, you know, like John the Baptist, you know, come out there and just thunder and lightning, you're going to let him have it. You know, repent! Kingdom of God is at hand, you, you know, and just blast them. And it's like, yeah, the judgment of God is going to lead them to repentance. Well, you know, it said of Jesus that a, a bruised reed he would not break. In other words, he was gentle. And here he talks about the kindness of God leading someone to change their life. But so many times we think we have to blast people. And most of the time, those who are in situations of just corruption know the error of their ways. God's Spirit is at work in them. We know that in Acts it says the Holy Spirit's job is to convict the world of sin. And he's doing that. And most of the time when I talk to people, if I develop a conversation with them, they don't have this attitude, well, I don't need anything. Every now and then you have someone who, who does, but a lot of people are aware of how bad their lives are. And what they really need is to know that God loves them and wants to pull them out of the mess that they're in. Now, yeah, they have to admit that they're in the mess. That's what repentance is. Turning your direction, changing the way you think. You have to say, yeah, I gotta stop living this way and I have to start living this way. And when I talk to people, that's not hard for them to understand. That's not a hard thing for them to grasp most of the time. But when they understand that God 
cares about them in their situation. Boy, that's helpful. And that does lead to repentance. And I've had a, a lot of counseling lately, people who are, are beating themselves up with their condition. And, you know, part of that is a good thing. Part of that recognition of the wrong is good. That's conviction. But when it goes to this place like, I don't know if God still loves me, well, then you've just condemned yourself, and that's not true. God's goodness, his mercy, is to bring you back. And his conviction is to make you understand the error of your ways, but he's got the door open. It, he's rich in kindness, and, and he's rich just in his tolerance and patience. And it's his kindness that will lead you towards repentance. And so Paul starts this address to the Jews who were there in Rome with this just powerful statement about judgment. And we need to be careful that we don't condemn. Don't write people off. Quick to say, that person, that person doesn't know the Lord. That person's never going to be saved. That person, you know... You don't know what's going on in a person's heart. Yes, you can make discernments. You can judge what is happening in their lives. And Paul tells us that if a person is acting like a non-believer, you treat them like a non-believer. But don't condemn someone. That's not your job. That's not my job. He goes on in verse 5 and he says, well, let me stop there. That's a powerful passage there. Does anyone have... Some questions about that? Are there any things that stand out to you uh, of importance there that maybe you've just kind of grasped hold of? I just want to open up because this, this is a powerful passage here. It really is pivotal in how we see our position and how we deal with other people. Anything stand out to you guys in that? If not, we can ask later and you guys can share too. But just before, because he's going to keep going here. Okay, we'll keep going. Then. In verse 5, he says, But because of your stubbornness, Paul's not really one to mix words here, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When his righteous judgment will be revealed, God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence and doing good seek glory, honor, and immorality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism or God is not a respecter of persons. Paul continues and he talks about the pride that is there that leads to this condemnation with people and how God is going to deal with everyone the right way, righteous judgment. Boy, is that something we need, righteous judgment. And one of the things you can be sure of 
is that God will deal with every person in the right way. I know a lot of us have family members who do not yet know the Lord. And we wonder, what's going to happen to them if they die? You know what? God will deal with them righteously. You will be able to say with whatever his decision is, that was the right decision. Whatever that decision is. But, but I don't know where they are. I love them so much. Well, God knows them better than you. God knows what he's done in their hearts. He knows the wickedness of their hearts better than you. He knows the things that he has moved and towards goodness, even as he talks there. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who are persistent in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immorality, immor, yeah, immortality. <laughs> Got to get that T in there. Um, he will give eternal life. God will take care of it. He will do what is right. I remember years ago, a woman came. They, they told me to do a counseling uh, for this lady who came in just off the street and needed to talk to a pastor. I was the youth pastor, and I was the only one available, so they, they gave her to me. You know, poor lady. Uh, she came in, and it was, it was very uh, emotional. She said that she had come to, to church and had heard the gospel message and believed it, but she wanted to know what happened to her husband who was not a Christian because he had just died. And she was asking me, where did he go to hell? Because I just have a hard time. If I accept this Christian faith and have to believe that he went to hell, I don't know that I can live with myself. And she was saying this through tears. And I'm just a punk kid. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And all I could tell her is God has righteous judgment. I'm not going to even tell you where your husband is. That ain't my job. Thank God. I don't have to make that decision. I will not be the one to tell you whether your husband is in hell or not. That doesn't belong to me. I don't have to worry about that. Yes, there is a hell. Yes, there is God's judgment. But whatever that judgment is, this is what I can tell you. It is right. And you will be able to say it is right at that time. That's all I could tell her. And for her, it wasn't enough. I, I can't tell her more. I'm not going to lie to her and say, oh, no, everyone goes to heaven. I don't know that. And it's not my place to say, yeah, you know, he's probably in hell. Just get used to it. I can't say that. <laughs> We're dealing with eternity here. God alone has that right. But everyone will be judged according to what they have done. Now, it's important to notice that we are not saved by what we do, but we are judged by what we do. And there is a big difference. 
We're saved by what Jesus has done, not by what we do, but we still will be judged for the things that we do. As followers of Christ, our judgment falls under Christ. He was judged for us. We don't deal with that judgment that leads to hell, but we will still be judged for our works. Everything's going to go through the fire. Wood, hay, stubble, whatever comes out that's useful, God says, that's good. The rest was trash. There's no escaping. And here's, here's the, the great thing and the scary thing at the same time. The great thing is that God's not going to be fooled. He knows the heart of everybody. He will judge righteously. That's the great thing, is God is going to do the right thing. Here's the scary thing, is God is going to do the right thing. He knows the heart. He knows who you really are. And so this all comes down to you and the choice that you make. You know, it's not, a, well, I'm going to play church. I'm going to fool this person. I'm going to do these things that make everyone think I'm this way. God knows your heart. He knows who you really are. You can't play games with him. But he's rich in mercy. He's rich in kindness. And he's made a way for you. He's made a way for me. So that this judgment of the things that we have done will not condemn us if we will allow it to fall on Christ and not us. He goes on and he tells us that this judgment is going to fall first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And it's interesting because, you know, the Jews are, are believing here, we are the chosen people. God revealed himself to Abraham. He gave us the law through Moses. He has been with us. The Messiah was born through the seed of David. We are God's chosen people. He says, okay, judgment's going to fall first on you. Jew first, because you've heard first, and then the Gentile. And then, as well, he says that the glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good to the Jew first. Why? Because you heard about it first. And then to the Gentile. This is not talking about better than or preference. This is talking about in priority to how it was given. The Jews were given this message first, so they have the opportunity to understand it first, then the Gentiles. So it's talking about priority, not preference. There's a difference there in how he's presenting this. Verse 12, he goes on and he says, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For if though, if, excuse me, for it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. I know he does this with the words. <laughs> it's like a tongue twister, you know. My sister Sally sells, anyway. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. 
Now, this is another powerful portion of passage. Verse 12, he says, all who sin apart from the law, that's talking about the Gentiles, who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. What does that mean? God's not going to judge you for what you don't know. But he is going to judge you for what you do know. We saw in the last chapter that all men is without excuse. But God is not going to hold you accountable for what he did not reveal to you. You know the question, what about the, the pygmies? What about those who are in lost tribes in Africa who have never heard the gospel? Are you telling me that they are going to go to hell because they did not believe in Jesus? No, they are going to go to hell because they did not believe whatever revelation God had given to them that they rejected. If God revealed to them something and they accepted it, it's in God's hands. He's not going to judge someone for what they don't know. But here's the thing. What do you know? How much do you know about this message? Quit worrying about the pygmies. Worry about you. God is going to judge righteously. You can count on it. And he's not going to hold someone who didn't have the law accountable for the law. They're still accountable, but it's not the same standard that was there for the Jews. And this is an important thing to understand and to grasp hold of because we can do what the Jews were doing if we're not careful. We, we can start judging everyone and expecting everyone's judgment to fall under what we know. And just like the Jews, well, they had the law and so everyone is going to be judged according to the law. Well, what if they didn't know the law? Is God going to judge them according to what they didn't know? It says here, no. What if, and we're, we're finding this more and more, especially in our culture, there are people who really don't know the gospel. They don't know the gospel message. Is God going to judge them because they don't know the gospel? No, he's going to judge them for what he did reveal to them. It's our obligation to present the gospel to them so that they can get a clear picture of who God is. And with that understanding comes the requirement to believe. It, 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 there becomes that accountability because now you know. If you didn't know, you don't get judged. If you do know, now you're accountable. And that's what Paul is telling to them. He's presenting to them that they're going to perish apart from the law. God's not going to judge them to the law, but he will judge them to the revelation that he received. And chapter 1 talks about that real clear. They're without excuse. It's not like God's going to say, well, I've got to let them slide because I didn't get the message to them. He's getting the message through. It's just not as clear as it was to the Jewish people because they had the law that explained God's heart to them. He goes on in verse 13, he says, if for it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Now, this is another important thing that we need to be careful of because so many times we think, I've heard it, therefore I am doing it. I've heard it, therefore I believe it. And 
you know, it's not hard for us to sit here and go, you know, I've been through chapter two of Romans and, you know, I was listening on the radio and I heard so-and-so teaching chapter two of Romans. I know this. It doesn't matter if you know it. It matters if you do it. Knowing it isn't enough. But we're, we're raising up a, a, a culture in the church that thinks that knowledge is the same thing as action. I know about these things, therefore I'm okay. No. You know about it, that means you're accountable to do it. And if you don't do it, you're not okay. You're not righteous. Just because they knew the law didn't make them righteous. You had to do the law to be righteous. Knowing it wasn't enough. And that's his whole point of you judge, but you do the same things. You still have envy. You still have jealousy. You still have malice. You still have those things in your life. And you're telling me you're going to condemn them? You see, God's going to judge you not because you know something. He's going to judge you if you don't do it. And I, that challenges me and Christianity for that matter, because there are a lot of people who know a whole lot about Christianity, but still aren't living it. And, and that's the key. Where is our life in line with what God is asking us to do? And unless we become content and say, well, I know about that, it's okay. Then, then we're not catching what's really necessary. And so just like they're obligated to do things, we're obligated to put to practice the things that we know. In verse 14, it says, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, do by nature things required of the law, they are a law for themselves. It doesn't mean that they have the law in their heart. What it means is that they have established that righteous judgment themselves. They understand. God has revealed it to them. They have now something that they have to measure up against. And God has said that they have those that do things, and you probably know people like that. People who were not Christian who have done things, and you think, that person's doing good things. What's going on? God has revealed it to them, and they're saying, yeah, this is how I need to live. This is what I need to do. Are they good enough? No. No one is. But they have to be accountable to what revelation God gives them. And if these Gentiles here in Rome are living a life that honors God, and here are these Jews who have the law, are living lives that don't, who's righteous? The ones who know about it and don't do it, or the ones who didn't know about it but are doing it? Paul's saying the ones who are doing what's right, they're the ones that are righteous. And God's not going to be mocked. Whatever we reap, we, we sow. I had to make sure I got that one right. He goes on and he just explains in verse 15, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts now according, now accusing, why do I keep blanking out there? Now accusing, now even defending them. Now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. And so God is going to judge us according to our conscience if we did not have the law, according to what he has revealed to us. But he goes on and he says, even men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. That's kind of a scary thing, the secrets. 
what, what does that mean? Well, the things you don't let people know. The things that you think when you think no one is paying attention. How you really feel. You know, and those, those are things that we, God's going to hold us accountable for. That's the things that we need to concern ourselves with. And now he goes on and, and he continues just with the Jews and their law. In verse 17, he says, now, if you call yourself a Jew, and you need to think of that as being proud. I'm a Jew. God has given us these things. And we do this with our nationality still. You see people saying, you know, well, I'm Italian, I'm Irish, and, and it's like a big deal, you know. Everyone's proud of their heritage. I'm, you know, whatever, I'm Mexican. I, I'm, you know, German, I'm English, whatever it is. I, you take pride in those things. You know, I'm proud of this, as if, you know, it's something special, even though there's millions of you around, you know. This pride that people just cling to. I think it's so funny how people will use their nationalities as excuses. You know that? And what's funny is like anger. Well, you know, I'm, I'm Spanish, so I've got a hot temper. Well, I've heard that with the Irish. I've heard it with the Italian. I've heard, you know, let's, let's face it. You just got a hot temper. It doesn't blame your nationality. It's just who you are. But we're quick to, you know, throw our nationality in there. But here he's the Jews. If you then are a Jew, in other words, you're saying, hey, I'm in line with you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, the Messiah is coming through our line. I am one of those people. If you're identifying with them, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will, which means you understand or have read the law, you, you know it in your mind and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Now, if you think those things belong to you, before we go on to see what he has to say, Ask yourselves, do you think those things belong to you as a Christian? Yes, you know, I, I am the instructor of the foolish. <laughs> uh, a teacher of infants. And what we're talking about here is pride. I am better than you because I know these things. Here again, we go to, you think it's enough to know? Just because you're a Jew, just because you know the law, you think you are now more, you're able to instruct the foolish, to teach the infants? This is your position? Well, I am, and we can easily transfer this to Christians, where I know the scriptures. I know who Jesus is. I know that he's the Messiah. Knowledge is not enough, as we're gonna see here. Verse 21, you then who teach others, do you teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? 
you who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Wow. How do you feel, Paul? He, he, he just blasts them and lets them know that you guys, you think you have it together because of what you know, because of how you or who you were born to. You think that puts you in a place. You think it's enough to know, but you who tell others, oh, you shouldn't steal, do you steal? And I think back of Jesus there in the temple, cleansing the temple. You have, my father's house is to be a house of prayer. You have made it a den of thieves. You're stealing. You're using this for profit. Jesus said, if you look at a woman and lust after her, you've committed adultery. But you say, oh, you shouldn't do this. You know what to say, but what's happening inside of you? Who are you really? And Paul is, again, dismantling whatever confidence they have in their tradition, whatever confidence they have in their position as being Jews. He's just dismantling it, and he's doing it rather well. And he's letting them know that you tell these things to other people, but do you do them yourself? Because if you do, you are no better than them. And the same is true for us. It doesn't matter if we call ourselves Christians. What matters is how we live our lives. And if we will not live our lives in obedience to God, then it doesn't matter. And the church is sick with people who know a whole lot, but do very little whose lives are not changed, who go to Bible study every week, three times a week. It doesn't matter how much you go. It doesn't matter how much you know. It matters who you are. And how do you know who you are? Well, how hungry are you for God? Are, are you hungry still to know where God is and what he wants of your life? Or, no, I've read that already. And you're just kind of, living this Christian life in cruise control. You know, when, when I was driving up north, you get on that five and you, there's this stretch where it just it goes for hours. And you put the cruise control on and you don't have to think much. You know, you just kind of check the rearview mirror, make sure, you know, there's no CHP behind you, you keep with the traffic. Every now and then you have to go past the trucks, you know, they're carrying the onions and the tomatoes or whatever. But you don't have to think much. You just kind of put it in control and I'm just going. You listen to your music, your audiobooks, whatever it is you're listening to. Eat chips, drink soda, whatever it is you're, you gotta do. I mean, the, the drive is secondary almost. It's just there. But now if you're in downtown LA and it's in the middle of the day, you can't do that. You can't go down Figueroa, put it in cruise control, <laughs> eat chips, drink. You have to pay attention. A lot of Christians 
are living this life in cruise control. Scriptures, eh, yeah, I, I've read that. They, you hear them, you hear them, but it's not something that's a part of your life. It's not something that means something to you. And how do you make it mean something to you? Well, you have to first recognize where you're at. And you have to change. You have to see that Paul might be talking to you and says, you who tell people you should live this way, are you living that way? Is your Christian life something that you would want other people to see and say, yeah, live like I do? Or is it dead? There's no life. And one of these situations that I'm counseling, there, there's this, you come to this place where people are like, they're not going to change. They're not going to change. You know, I can't deal with them. They're not going to change. They're not going to change. And you have to stop and say, well, you're a follower of Jesus, right? Yeah, I am. And you're a follower of Jesus, right? Yeah, I am. What can God not change? What can God not do? He took Paul, who was a murderer of those who followed the way, and made him a preacher. What can God not change? Do you believe? Where is your faith? Or are you just going through the motions? I'm this person. I'm this kind of person. I'm a Christian. I do these things. But them, uh, they're not going to change. God can change anyone. Don't limit what God can do. And most of all, don't limit what he wants to do in your own life. Don't cut yourself short. God wants to make your Christianity powerful and alive. I, you know, it's so fun and exciting to, to live on the edge of this Christian life, to, to share your faith with someone and not know what's going to happen next. What, what question are they going to ask me? I don't know. And it's scary and you wonder, and I'm going to go to this place, you know, like Tuesday night going, I'm going to a trailer park and I'm going to teach a Spanish Bible study. What's that about? What am I doing here? You know, I, I'm, and there's this like, I don't know. Let's see what happens. And God wants to do that with all of us. I'm going into the, you know, the store. I'm going into the grocery store. I think I'm going to talk to someone. Because I've been praying, God, open the door, help me to talk to someone. And I haven't talked to anyone all day. Maybe they're here. Maybe it's someone in the grocery store. Who is it? And you get anxiety, you know, and, you have, and then you, you pass out because you hyperventilate. <laughs> and, and then the, you know, EMT comes up there and, oh, you're the one I'm supposed to talk to. You know, I don't. Your Christian life should be an adventure. It should be exciting. God should be at work in you. And if it's not, wake yourself up and ask him why not. What aren't you doing? Why aren't you stepping into this place? You know, why has faith become security? The word itself, faith, sounds scary, doesn't it? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What's secure about that? What's secure about faith? It, it's an adventure. It, it's stepping out, trusting God. Anyway, I'm getting off the point. But anyway, he's telling them here that it's not enough that they have these things, that they do the very things that they're telling not to do, that God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. In other words, they see your hypocrisy. Let's not allow people to see hypocrisy in our lives. 
Verse 25, circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you even though you have the written code and circumcision are a lawbreaker. And you know what I love about this passage here is I think back in Acts when Paul was defending the Gentiles and saying they do not have to be circumcised. We're getting to see probably what he said to the church that was there in Jerusalem. He's probably saying, you know what? Circumcision is great if you keep all the law, but what did Jesus say about that? And they're like, oh, we remember what he said about that. If you obey one thing, you've got to obey everything. And it's a matter of the heart. Yeah, we know what he said about that thing. And he goes, so if these people are, are not keeping the law but are doing the things right in God's eyes, then who's circumcised? Which ones have the covenant with God? Is it really just about the, the cutting of the flesh? Is that really what it's about? Or is it something more? And he says that they will condemn you who even though you have the written code and circumcision are a lawbreaker. And what he means by that, it's not that they're going to be the ones judging you, is their position is going to be the one that stands in basically condemnation of where you're at. That's what you should have been, but you were over here. Even though you had the law and you had the circumcision, you lived this way, they lived this way, they're going to condemn you because of how they're living. Verse 28 says, a man is not a Jew. There's that word. And, and the word here, it's important to know that the word Jew means praise because he has a little play on words here. He says, a man is not a Jew or praise if he is only one outwardly. Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew, praise, if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. And there's where he uses that word, a man's praise is not from men, but is from God. God is the one who gives the stamp of approval. And there is a circumcision of the heart. In other words, the covenant of God is not something, an ordinance that I just know about and I just follow but don't care about. The circumcision of God is something that is a part of my heart, the center of my being. It is a part of who I am. And Paul says that that circumcision by the Spirit, not by the written code, such a man's praise, that Jewishness, if you will, is not from men, but from God. It's not a matter of who you were born to. It's a matter of you belong to God. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3 real quick. Because Paul addresses this again here very clearly as he talks about the confidence that people put in their religion and their religiosity, if you will. Finally, my brethren, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. 
Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. And he's talking about the circumcision here. For it is we who are the circumcision. We who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. We are the worshipers of God, who don't put confidence in the flesh, in who we were born to. We are born, we are Jew by our tradition, or what we call ourselves, I am a Christian. And we see this again rising up within the church. It comes up under denominations. Well, what church do you go to? Oh, well, I belong to the Baptist Pentecostal, you know, Presbyterian movement. You know, it's like, who cares? But you can see in people, well, I'm of this church. Oh, what does that mean? Well, what? You know, well, I go to this church. You know, and at our church, we have the truth. We have the spirit. We teach the word. We do these things. And, and you start, it, it really doesn't matter what church you go to. I don't put any confidence in the flesh, and that includes what church you go to. There is no confidence in going to a church. Who cares what you know? What's your life like? That's what matters. I don't care what you know. I, I, it scares me sometimes the things that I, I perceive, and of course I can't condemn because that would be wrong, but you start trying to discern things. And I know that there's been times where I've spoken at, at retreats for a college age group, and these who are going to Bible college, these kids who are going to Bible college, I, I get this arrogance from them this know-it-all. Yeah, I know, I, I know this. And they finish your, you know, scriptures for you. Oh, yeah, I know the Bible. And, you, you know, well, the Lord says, and they, oh, yeah, yeah, no, you know, chapter, verse, the, you want it in King James, New American Standard, or NIV. You know, it's like, <laughs> and it's like I, I want it in your heart. I don't, I don't want you to re recite things. I want you to be an example of, of what it means to live for Jesus and to have a life that is committed to God. That's what I want. And it scares me to, to see how we have equated knowledge with spirituality, especially in the United States, especially in Southern California and some of the Bible Belt areas where there is such a proliferate, there's so much. <laughs> can't even talk. It's that cartoon character. I feel like Porky the Pig right now. <laughs> There's so much of it. I hear it in my head, but it's not coming out. Proliferation uh, of knowledge in the gospel, but that is thought of as the same as knowing the creator. And it's just not. It's just not. It's a new Phariseeism where we have confidence in what we know instead of confidence in Jesus and who he is to us. And we need to be careful that that doesn't take place within us. And Paul now has just dismantled the Gentiles 
and showed their need for God and he's just dismantled the Jews and their need for repentance as well putting confidence in the wrong thing and he's going to now tell us about God's faithfulness the Gentiles they need help you Jews you need help guess what God's here to help and that, that's why the book of Romans is such a great it's called the gospel of grace because it gives us help and it's going to show us that no one's righteous. Gentiles, Jews, we're not righteous. We all need God's help. Amen. Well, let's pray and then enjoy some time together. God, I do thank you again for speaking through these scriptures. And God, there's so much here for us to, to grab hold of. And you want so much to teach. And Lord, I just pray that our hearts would be open to hear. Lord, I pray that I'd be able to communicate and I pray that you would be alive and powerful within our lives. Father, that we would live this faith, even like Danny shared, we, we would practice it. We would own it. It would be who we really are. And Lord, I pray that you would reveal those areas where we're blind, where we are self-righteous where we are judgmental where we condemn people and have no right to where we don't recognize our own condition and how merciful you've been to us and lord take that to people um, give us wisdom lord this this is a balancing act in so many ways where we have to stand for what is true and be able to to discern but at the same time not condemn uh, where we be able are able to love, but sometimes love, as Paul just did with us, is rebuke. Um, sometimes we need to be able to rebuke. And, and God, show us when, show us how, and give us that wisdom to live this life in this balance and, and in this understanding. Thank you again for your Holy Spirit who is at work within us. Lord, we do love you and we do thank you for your goodness. And we ask your continued blessing in our lives. In Jesus' name.